Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, today's episode is brought to you by the Litbreaker Ad Network. Litbreaker is an online ad network for book nerds, for culture vultures, for people who like movies, music, art, you name it. If you want to reach such people with your message, go to litbreaker.com and you can advertise on a whole variety of great culture websites like The Nervous Breakdown, The Rumpus, Large Hearted Boy, Full Stop, The Believer, uh, Electric Literature, you name it. Or if you want, you can do it piecemeal and pick the sites that you want to advertise on one by one. It's very user-friendly. Check out litbreaker.com for more information. One more time, litbreaker.com. Litbreaker, it's an online advertising network. Go and advertise on it. Oh, my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Big, big, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it was like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. All right. right, everybody. Here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is something you have decided to listen to. This is like wiretapping somebody's phone. Hello. Greetings. Season's greetings. How are you? I'm Brad Listy. I'm sitting here in Los Angeles. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm seated comfortably in a chair. It's good to be with you. Uh, I'm grateful for you. I'm thankful for your listenership. Dorothy Alasky is my guest. Yet another reason to be thankful. She is a poet. Her latest collection is called Rome. It's available now from Live Right press an imprint of uh, w w norton and uh, she and i are going to be talking in just a minute uh, i hope you're doing well and uh, i just want to do the uh, quick holiday plug this is the holiday shopping season i talked about this in the last episode uh, it's a good time of year to ask for listener support and the way that i do that is twofold one uh, go sign up for the tnb book club the nervous breakdown book club just go to the nervous and click on book club in the menu bar uh, you can get a book a month for less than the cost of a book per month. It's nine ninety nine a month. You get a new book delivered to your door every 30 days. Go to thenervousbreakdown.com, click on book club, learn more. Uh, you know, the best part about it, or one of the best parts about it, is that every single author featured in the club gets interviewed on this program. So you can read, you can listen, uh, or you can listen and then read. Or you can do both simultaneously if you're extremely talented. The other thing I would ask is uh, go get the app. This program has its own app. That app is free. You get it on your device, uh, whether you have uh, an iPhone or an Android, and then the most recent 50 episodes of this show will be there waiting for you free of charge. 
Uh, what I ask from a support standpoint is uh, to sign up for premium, which comes out to, if you do the year membership, it comes out to 75 cents a month. So if you want access to everything, you want to stream the full archives, get the free other people app and then sign up for premium right there within the app. It's very easy. It's a, uh, it's fairly cheap. I mean, 75 cents a month. Come on. What a bargain. So if you do those things, uh, I would appreciate it. And, uh, other than that, I thought we'd do things a little bit differently today, uh, by way of introducing Dorothea. Uh, for those of you who might not know, uh, Dorothea is a poet. And, uh, as we were talking, uh, you know, as we were talking off the air, she, uh, asked me if she, you know, if I would like her to read a poem, I said, sure. She read one of her poems and uh, I thought we would begin today's show by listening to her. What better way? Enough from me. Let's listen to her. So we'll hear a poem from Dorothy Alasky, and then uh, I'll come back for a second, reintroduce her, and then uh, we'll get into the interview. How does that sound? So here is Dorothy Alasky reading one of her poems. Okay, so I thought I would share a poem um, called Porn With You um, from uh, my new book called Rome, and here it goes. All types of porn are horrific. I just watched a woman fuck a hired hand in her marble kitchen while her friends looked on. The title of the movie was Divorce Party, and threw out his big cock, her skinny thighs, her friend shouted, Nah, girl, now you're free. But no, she's not. She's in a movie. And now I am crying because the man looks like an ex-boyfriend or my half-brother, my boss, a monster, someone who left me in the dark, someone who darkened me a million times over. I've only fucked seven guys in my whole life, but I've watched more porn than you ever will. Hours and hours, a woman and a dog, three women, a hairy fruit, four bending over backwards, vomit sex, the underplay of tendril in motion. I watch porn because I'll never be in love, except with you, dear reader, who thinks I surrender. But who's to say this stanza is not porn? Calculated and hurtful, all my friends say I'm free. And yes, maybe I am. But are you free? No, you'll never be. I've got you in my grasp. I've got you right here in my room once again. So <clears throat> there we go, folks. That's Dorothy Alasky. That is a poem called Porn. Uh, enjoyable, is it not? More enjoyable than porn. I don't know if it's more enjoyable than actual porn. Depends on who you are, right? I don't know if I should comment on that. Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now. 
wherever you buy books. Anyway, let's get going with the interview. This is Dorothy Alasky. Her new collection is called Rome. It's available now from LiveRight, and it's such a great pleasure to have her here. This is Dorothy Alasky, and that collection, one more time, is called Rome. Sam Hoarder for real. I mean, I don't know. It hasn't reached the level that I should be on one of those shows yet. I definitely think in maybe 20 years it could reach that level. I have to definitely um, work to keep it under control because I'm very sentimental about objects. I love objects. Um, I, my mom um, is an antique dealer and an art historian, so I grew up with like a real respect for objects and a kind of coveting of, you know, a special object that you travel to get or you, you know, you're waiting uh, to go to some, you know, special little store to get. And so I feel that way definitely about objects. I feel like they have a spirit and they're really important to me. And it's interesting you ask about the desk because um, I'm getting some domestic pressure to get rid of the desk and I do it's it's not necessarily like what I would have um necessarily picked out completely if I could have just picked out a desk but I do um feel as I just said because so much has happened I do feel a little bit sentimental and I don't think I'm going to get rid of the desk because um I would just be I would really miss it it's kind of a secretarial desk so it has like lots of little compartments. You could see, you know, how pe- in the letter writing days, people would keep all their different mail stuff and things like that in it. And yeah, it's um so so uh, I definitely feel connected to the desk, but I do have very strong connections to all things clothes. You know, um, I collect lots of objects and miniatures and jewelry and stuff. And are we um, are we dealing like like I'm trying to picture your apartment? Like, (laughs) is there a ton of clutter? I mean, is it like is it really hoardery and that things are piling up and it's insane and you're like finding like old like half eaten bagels and stuff? (laughs) Well, because I'm scared of mice, it's not clutter in that kind of way. But, but definitely, like I have in this apartment, I had a creativity room um, where there, you know, I had like just let myself collect stuff to make collages or make other stuff. And so um, some might say it's clutter. I think it's just, you know, keeping things for future use, yeah. you know, and you can't always tell what that use will be. But definitely, is, I'm not a minimalist. I'm I'm the opposite of a minimalist. See, so I'm a, I'm a minimalist. Like I'm, I'm one yeah. of the, I've always, I say this a lot on this show, but I'm one of those people who like has fantasies about living in one of those like glass houses with nothing in them except like <laughs> one low like Scandinavian couch. Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would I would definitely. I I definitely have fantasies about that, but I I think I could never 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 do that, and it would make me very sad. Okay. To actually be in that situation. <laughs> so, I would just... so what you're saying is that my, my dream makes you very sad. <laughs> it, w- it doesn't make me sad imagining you in it. And I'm happy <laughs> that people want to do that. And I, there is something wonderful about the idea of um, just being burden free. And it, you know, stuff is like a really big burden. And it's really, really, really traumatic to move if you have a lot of stuff because you're just like having to throw out things and you're like, oh no. But I, um, yeah, but I, I just, I wouldn't be able to, to really function for very long. I would definitely just start buying things. So wait, and you said you're moving. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yeah. You, so you're in Brooklyn and then where are you moving to? 
I'm moving to Morningside Heights. So I'm not walking there with all this stuff because that would be awful. So, (laughs) uh, but um, yeah, so it's going to be a little bit of a change. I really love, um, yeah, I live in Bed-Stuy and I really love Bed-Stuy and I really like this apartment. So, um, so it just, uh, yeah, I'm not too excited about the move. But why, well, why are you doing it? Why, like, what's had, the... had a convenience sake because I work in Morningside Heights, so um, it's just going to be much more convenient, like a lot more convenient. What do you so, do? What do you you work in Morningside Heights? What are you up to? I'm um, I'm a professor at Columbia, oh. and um, I got faculty housing, so it's like I'm basically living on campus. I'm, I'm going to be there when people are you know doing beer bongs. I mean, I won't be there with them. I'm not putting that on record, but I will pass the beer bongs or whatever kind of things, you know, people are doing. So okay. I will be and, part and of it. Forgive me not for... part of it, but watching, you know, not even watching it. I could, I can't help. I'll be a bystander. In the... <laughs> a passing witness. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but forgive me for not knowing my New York geography. Like, isn't Columbia <laughs> uptown and you're in Brooklyn and Morningside Heights is where? It's it's really uptown. It's like 116th. You you can't get well. No, you can get more uptown, definitely. But you're getting close to the boundaries of uptown, and I'm and I'm sort of getting close to the boundaries of downtown. Uh huh. Okay, so you're you're leaving Brooklyn and heading onto the island way uptown near Columbia. Yes. All right. Yeah. Okay. So I can see how that could be a little traumatic. You get attached to Brooklyn. You get attached to your borough, and then now you got to go uh, into the into the city, as it were. Yes, and I mean I'm excited too because I know you know for lots of convenience sake reasons there'll be 24 hour everything and that's kind of awesome you know food Dwayne Reed I like to hang out in Dwayne Reed late at night and I've never been able to do that it closes at like 7 p.m. and um, you know there's not the only 24 hour food place here is Dunkin' Donuts which I do make use of but you know I'm excited to know there'll be other options who is Dwayne Reed the mysterious Dwayne Reed do we have have a bio on him I don't know that it's a he I mean we I I've always thought it was a woman to be honest really yeah, I a mean, a woman named Dwayne. <laughs> I I sort of think, yeah. <laughs> That's kind of a cool name for a girl. I like that, Dwayne. <laughs> yeah, Dwayne. Yeah, I I like men's names for girls. Yeah, actually. well, no, I named my daughter Evan. So. Oh, I love that. That's. There we go. <laughs> we still be, but it's kind of like you know, it's one of those things. Like we love the name, she loves the name. I think it's I think it's like our our bet is that twenty years from now, uh, it's going to be much more popular. Like we just got in early. Oh, definitely. Oh, I love, I love, I once knew a female cat named Malcolm and it was so, I loved that. I love like Henry, you know, I love different male names for girls. Yeah. And see, and then we gave her Olivia for her middle name in case like she gets to high school and she like can't pull off the boy's name or she, you know, she can fem it up. She has the option if she needs to, you know. Oh, you can always fem and you can always change your name too. Yeah. So that would right? kind of, that would kind of bum me out. That would be like oh. a total, be a total rebuke. Like, no, <laughs> you, you guys fucked it up. I don't like my name. Um, so, okay, but you said you like to hang out in Dwayne Reed late at night? <laughs> well, in theory. I mean, I haven't done that, in a, you know, in a really long time. All right. But but I like having the option. That That's an exciting option. You know, not that I would, but just to know I'm not necessarily boxed in. Well, New York City is so stimulating. Yeah. Uh, like to be there... There's great. There's an incredible energy to that city, uh, which is probably not news to most people listening. But uh, if you've never been there before, then you wouldn't know, I guess, uh, in, in like a visceral way or whatever. Is that the right usage of the word visceral? You know what I mean. I, 
Yes. Uh, yeah. You you know you, like until you're there and you experience it on the ground, uh, you know it's hard to maybe understand it. But I think most people, um, you know, have been there or can imagine being there. I go to New York and I don't sleep as much. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm I love walking the streets. I love seeing everybody, riding the subway, doing all that stuff. When you live there. Uh, I'm sure that, you know, that's feeding you a lot, but do you ever get exhausted from it? Cause it seems to me like, like, I don't know what would happen to me if I had access to that every day. Like eventually you sort of have to just get into a normal rhythm of life. Yeah, I don't, it is a kind of exhaustion. Um, a lot of, you know, if it's the wrong moment, you just kind of feel really, really sort of, um, maybe just put down in a way by everything because it is kind of cold. It's not like you're having, you know, really meaningful interactions with all those people. I'm at the very most you're having 10 second things. So you kind of just feel resigned to this sort of lonely um fight i do think of it as a kind of fight because you do have to fight you know to sit down on the subway or to like um you know get anything you really have to fight with people and you have to kind of be mean and um i grew up in the midwest so at that you know it was definitely a shock at first and there are sometimes when i just feel a little bit like i'd like to get away or i just would like to be able to be polite and to have that be enough, but it's not, it's obviously never enough. That's like, you don't want to be polite. You want to be a little bit grouchy. Yeah. The Midwestern, uh, the Midwestern niceness isn't going to cut it when you're fighting for a subway seat. (laughs) (laughs) In fact, it's actually probably going to hurt you. I mean, if at all, there's any weakness, people are just going to run all over you. So where are you from in the Midwest? I'm from St. Louis, St. Louis, Missouri. Yeah. Yeah. I grew up there and then I also went to college there and then I kind of never went back. I mean, I do go back there sometimes to visit, um, but I don't, I haven't spent any substantial time there since I left. So happy childhood in the Midwest? Happy childhood is happy as any childhood could be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I didn't, you know, I didn't love um, growing up there. I now see some of the benefits, but um, I didn't, you know, yeah, like I wasn't, I didn't feel totally um, at home or accepted um, in St. Louis. It was very conservative. And, um, you know, I kind of, you know, looking at New York now, I wonder how would I feel if I had grown up in New York or whatever. Um, So it's, you know, of course, hard to know. But uh, I can definitely see the threads that have uh, connected me as an adult to being from there. But, um, yeah, I'm not really in a hurry to go back there and live you have because you still have family back there i have a, a mom and i don't have any brothers and sisters and my dad passed away a few um years ago so i don't really except for seeing my mom i don't really have reason i don't really have friends there anymore and um i don't have a lot of ties there so it um yeah so it's not always like the most i, I i'm used to it but i'm not always excited to go back yeah i, I get that so you uh so you grew up as an only child Grew up as an only child, your yes. Mo- your mom, you said, was a uh, antiques dealer and art historian? Yes. And then what did your dad do? He was a judge, and he actually was um, born in St. Louis and went to college there and fought in the wars and then came back and lived there. And He really loved St. Louis, and he really, you know, but it was a, it was a different time because he... Um, he died at 92, so he had me at around 60, uh, actually at 60. So for him, it was just kind of, he had a very different relationship to it. And, you know, being a judge, he just saw a lot of the, you know, machinations of 
of the city and the county and stuff that for him was very interesting. And so I think that lended to his love of it also. And his family had a shoe store um, in the Del Mar Loop. So Lasky Shoes, which some people used to remember, but they don't now because now it's a Starbucks. But um, <laughs> <laughs> like, like everything else. <laughs> but um, so so I think it just he was very entrenched in the city in a, a way that I kind of it wasn't exactly. And also it was a different time in terms of I grew up kind of in the suburbs and um, the county and city were definitely very divided. And um, when he grew up, you know, it was more um, he grew up more what kind of I mean I'm a historian is gonna say this isn't is incorrect possibly but you know more what might be considered the city the city was more thriving and vibrant when he was growing up so I think it was just a more exciting time to be there yeah yeah I yeah. I, I, I can fall prey to this this thing where I always feel like things were better in the past you know <laughs> it's like I, I, my timing's off the city has decayed like and I live in Los Angeles and it's always like man I wish I would have lived here in the 70s and, <laughs> when shit was good and easy rider was happening and sunset Boulevard wasn't like a mall or, you know, all that kind of stuff that people say, but that's probably, it's probably a fallacy to some extent. I love Los Angeles. So my mom's actually from Los Angeles and I've always wanted to live there. And every time I go there, well, growing up when we would go there, I would think of it as this magical place. And I still really, really do think of it as a magical place. where's Where's your mom from? Um, well, I mean, she basically grew up in Santa Monica and she went to UCLA and, um, I don't know exactly. I wish I, I should ask her because I don't know the exact neighborhood, but my grandpa then lived in Marina Del Rey when I was little. So I used to go there. And so I just have really good associations with it. So how did your mom from Santa Monica and UCLA grad wind up married to a St. Louis judge who was <laughs> considerably older? <laughs> well, um, she uh, is an art historian, so she was like an academic, and she got a job in St. Louis, and then somebody introduced them. You know, uh, somebody set them up, basically. Gotcha. And, yeah, and it was love at first sight, basically, you know, for for all intents and purposes. And he was 60, and she, I mean, if she had you, she must have been, what, in her 30s? Yeah, she had me at um, 35. Wow, that's a big age gap. But, you know, I have a friend who married, uh, a friend of mine from college, she married a guy. She was must she must have been like 25 or 27 or something and he was like 52. Yeah. And it was but it was like once you started hanging out with them you were like, "Oh, I, I see how this could work." Like the age is a it's not a you know, it's not like the uh, only determining factor, you know? Like it can be transcended. Oh, definitely. I think so. I mean, my dad was very, very useful. Um, but I, you know, I I think for sure I um you know, I don't know. I've never dated anybody considerably older, but I would definitely not Damn. be. Able to I was, I was waiting for you. I, I was waiting for you to be like, <laughs> my boyfriend is uh, seventy-four. He's sitting right here. <laughs> I've only ever dated. I mean, really, you know, it's been like within one year. There've been somewhere there's been three or four years or something, but it, yeah, it's they've always been around my age for some reason, um, and I've never really dated a younger guy. But I wouldn't be opposed to to any of it. Yeah, um, I, I married. I, think, I married an older woman. She's a year. How much She's a year oh, older, girl. but I, I, not- I, I love it. I love it. I'm always like <laughs> teasing her about how old she is. You know? <laughs> That's not, I don't know if that, it does count. A year is something. It is, especially, <laughs> especially when she's 40 and I'm 39. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, okay. So you're, you're uh, growing up in this household and you, you know, you're, um, you know, you're an only, what is it like to have a father who? You know, he was a youthful uh, six in his 60s or whatever when you're a kid. But then as you get older and he's getting older, 
um, you, you know, that's got to weigh on you in some respects, right? Because he is getting elderly, maybe faster than your friend's parents, or not even maybe. He is older than your friend's parents, by and large, I would imagine. Um, like, did that affect you? Did that give you a sense of uh, the finite nature of life, maybe quit more quickly than other children might receive such knowledge? Definitely. I mean, he, he passed away. I, I definitely wasn't young by any means. I was 32. So, you know, I was old enough to totally comprehend and understand it. But um, definitely the, the kind of aging he had, you know, where he was dealing with being a senior was, you know, usually people deal with that in their 50s or 60s or whatever. So um, so it was kind of that that part did teach me a lot about life and death you know, at, at younger than normal, but it certainly wasn't, you know, traumatic youth or something, but I did, yeah, I, I did see age differently, you know, from, from the beginning. And I saw, um, just how much you can do in a life, uh, differently, you know, from earlier on. And I think it was a great, great service to me, um, especially in terms of language, because I really did grow up in a house where, you know, different generations were, were speaking. And um, both of my parents were very intelligent and very, very, very verbal. So especially the, the language he used, um, you know, I think really influenced, influenced me um, and uh, for in the good way. Like we, he was a big reader? <laughs> he was a big reader. He was a really big talker. <laughs> I mean, and they both, they both were really big talkers and they just, you know, they just knew a lot and they had a lot of opinions. And so that, you know, just listening to them talk. And of course, because he was a a judge in a a certain generation, he had a real formality of talking and and writing, especially that I think, um, you know, kind of really served me really well. And the fact there is a formality to like uh, previous generations, like I'm thinking way back to like I. One of the things that's always stayed with me is I remember watching the uh, Ken Burns documentary about the Civil War. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know if you ever saw that, but um, they do all this voiceover where they read letters sent from like the, the battlefront back home, you know, from these soldiers. And mm-hmm. just like the, the average letter written by a Civil War soldier back in the day trumps any email I've ever gotten by like a factor <laughs> of a thousand. Like they're so, they're so beautifully written. People used to really write beautifully to one another. And now it's like, you know, we've gotten into like the age of the acronym and like the emoji <laughs> and it's really, it's really different, you know? <laughs> and I like to think, you know, because I do love informal language too. And I like to think, well, you know, it's just language changing and there's beauty in that and all that stuff. But I think part of the reason I feel that way is, I have been exposed to an older, an older language too. And I wonder, yeah, if I would be, you know, more, more kind of thinking that it, it didn't really cut it. If I could only read in literature, you know, beautiful language and then hear the way people talk, that might be very disturbing. I think (laughs) I really, you know, I like, I love paying attention to the way people talk. So I think, you know, seeing that kind of beautiful craftsmanship, as conversation from my father um, lets me appreciate, you know, the weird craftsmanship of people writing and speaking now in an everyday way. Yeah. What's well, like, yeah. Cause like, you know, like we were talking, like I was talking about earlier about always thinking that the past was better. Like there I go again with the letter writing. And I guess if, if the, the trend holds like mm-hmm. 50 or a hundred years from now, people will look back on 2014 and be like, people used to write so beautifully to each other. 
the emojis and like they'll be in an age where it's like grunts and clicks or something. <laughs> well, I do think the emojis and I mean, I think a lot of it and the acronyms and all that stuff, I, I don't personally always love that. But I think especially the emojis, you know, if it's like hieroglyphics and stuff, I think that I think it is an exciting time in that way. I mean, I think Twitter, we're joking about Twitter, but I think Twitter is exciting. And I don't know, I've, I've always thought Twitter was going to be more important than I guess when you talk to like social media people and you probably know this they they're always saying twitter still isn't as big as facebook or whatever it's not really that big but i've always said twitter was something really really important and kind of a future direction and i still think that that we've yet to see you know the ways in which we can condense language and how that's going to be exciting you yeah, know i don't yeah i agree completely i think twitter is a big deal to people in media and especially people people who write uh be it you know whatever uh, form it takes who decide to go into social media almost always gravitate towards Twitter. Like eventually they realize Facebook is a garbage. It's like a garbage can. <laughs> it is. It I, is. I hate Facebook. I'm off <laughs> Facebook, but I, Twitter is actually like has a literary quality to it. And it's a fun, it's a fun word game. You know, the compression of language and trying to be witty and inside of 140 characters. I mean, that's, there's a, there's an appeal that seems understandable to me. Yeah. Uh, and I, especially to a poet, I would imagine. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, uh, to me, I I hate Facebook. Too. I keep waiting for fa Facebook to die because I don't I mean, the kind of conversations people have in there are so, so superficial and dumb. And I just I really think Twitter is so much better because you can't you don't have space to have anything but either a kind of really important conversation. <laughs> you know what I mean? But kind of say what you mean. And I just I um. Yeah, I think of Facebook like as a sort of arena or like a town square where people are just gossiping and just doing nothing. And it just, I'm really, I, I would like for it to die, but I know it won't. Actually. <laughs> I, I wish, I wish death upon you, Facebook. <laughs> so uh, you went to college in St. Louis? Yeah, I went to college in St. Louis. Yes. I went to Wash U. Um, okay. Yeah, Washington University. Were you were you uh, uh, socially well adjusted? You seem really sunny and nice. I imagine you had lots of friends growing <laughs> up. Like you didn't, you weren't one of these like uh, sulking teenagers who w was isolated or anything like that. I totally was sulking, um, but yeah, I do have uh, a personality which may sort of hide that. I was um, definitely growing up really. I was, you know, queen of the nerds, and so I had all my friends were nerds, and they wore trench coats, and that was really by choice. I really didn't like, you know, anybody but nerds, and so um, in college, it, you know, that that culture doesn't always transfer. Um, but but for sure, I um. I I have very very few friends, but as I would as I would say, even um you know there's lots of people that I would call friends, but um but I very very few people are important to me. And you said you haven't carried many of your childhood friendships into your adult life, like the St. Louis friends, um, kind of uh, fizzled out. Yes, yeah, I had like I had one um, friend in in high school um, named Jock who is a, like a sculptor and, and I and I said this will be the one friend I'll try to keep and we haven't really kept in touch but he'd be the one person I'd be excited to talk to I think it's hard it's hard yeah. to maintain friendships and like one of the lessons of adulthood that has come to me uh, painfully is that you know what you can't keep them all in fact you can't keep a lot of them and then there are situations where you might want to keep them but they don't want to keep you and it, take, it take, takes work. It takes a mutual, you know, it takes kind of a mutual effort in order for the friendship to continue. 
uh, and to sustain it and whatnot. And then you get into, you know, your work life and your family life if you have kids and life gets really busy. It gets hard to kind of keep track of it all. Yes. And it becomes less and less important, I think, you know, um, but at the same time, I really think friendship is kind of the most important thing about being alive. I mean, when you have a really good friend, it does transcend all the other BS that, you know, other relationships have or the other sense that the great thing about friendship is it's really not about obligation. I mean, if you really have a friend, you really actually want to see them. They make you feel better. And, and I think that that's what's hard is a lot of time adult relationships can turn into obligation just by the nature of scheduling and stuff. And so that, you know, that's why I think it's hard to kind of keep a real friend because sometimes those people that you really actually want to see, it just doesn't work out or whatever. Yeah. But, yeah. Do you have a lot of friends as an adult? Um, I feel like I do, but it, but really only a few that really mean a lot to me. Um, yeah. I mean, I have, I have a best friend that I've had since maybe for 13 years, um, named Eric, who, um, means a lot to me. So I, I know, you know, sometimes I say, can I, can I sustain friendships? Like, I'm, do I have a disorder or something? <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but I, I am able to, it's just like, um, it just, they're, yeah, there, there's not a lot of them. Do you think being an only child has affected your uh, your ability to maybe go it more alone than maybe other people or to be not quite as social as some others might be? Oh, definitely. Yes. Like, I think that just being used to being alone and having not being freaked out by that. I mean, I definitely get lonely, but not, I'm not freaked out about the idea of like going to do something by myself seems totally fine. And I know the outcome of that. And sometimes it does seem preferable, you know, cause it just getting used to not talking to anyone when you're doing this, doing something and not having somebody, you know, bother you or interrupt you. I think that's, what's great about people with siblings is that they are totally socialized. And I think being an only child, you're not exactly socialized. In well, the see, same way. But here's how weird I am. I, I, I grew up with two sisters and <laughs> I'm like, like sometimes I hear people say like, Oh, there's nothing more sad than seeing somebody eating alone in a restaurant or I can't stand <laughs> to eat alone. I love to eat alone. Like I'll go, yeah. into, I'll go into a restaurant and sit at the bar and eat alone and like read a magazine or a book or like happily, like that's not yeah, a problem. I'll go to a movie alone any day. Could care less, <laughs> you know, like, so I, I don't know what happened to me. <laughs> <laughs> me too. Yeah. You know, there was like, there were periods of time. I mean, there's sometimes when it kind of makes me sad, but for the most part, yes. I mean, well, maybe you're just an only child at heart or something. Maybe. Or I'm just an <laughs> asshole. I don't know. <laughs> no, I don't think it's an asshole. I yeah. think it's important. Yeah. I think, but yeah, you know, I'm, I'm, but I can also go out with other people. Like I'm versatile. I can do either yeah. one. I'm not going to get all spooked because. I have to eat alone. I, you know, that seems to be a little <laughs> melodramatic to me. Like, I know. You have your iPhone, you know, talk to it. Talk, <laughs> t- tweet about your meal, for God's sakes. Well, that's true. It you Before, like, cell phones, which I do remember, you know, um, it, you did feel more alone when you would go alone. I never feel alone if I'm by myself because I do have a phone. Yeah. So it, it's really hard. It, I mean, you do feel, of course existentially lonely but you don't feel really it's very hard to feel lonely in, in our See, day I, now i miss it now i miss feeling lonely I'm like <laughs> god damn it i can't get away <laughs> i know. You know i feel that way yeah i yeah i do i do miss that in lots of ways but i, I always remember whenever like pre-cell phone like pre-smartphone whenever i would go out to eat alone uh, i always had to have like a newspaper or i had you know I, I didn't i don't like to eat alone when there's no nothing to read i guess 
that seems sad to me somehow. But if I'm like reading something and I'm occupied, but if I'm just sitting there like staring at my waiter, you know, like, <laughs> or at the, at the, at the table setting across from me, that starts to take on an air of sadness to me. <laughs> yes, I, okay. I agree. Okay. So uh, Washington at St. Louis, did you find a new tribe of nerds? I didn't exactly. Um, I, I had a boyfriend I really liked, but I didn't find a new tribe of nerds, sadly. I wish I had. I'm always looking for more tribes of nerds. What were you, what were you studying? I studied, I majored in classics and psychology and I really wanted to be a child psychologist. Um, but that did not happen. Yeah. Or maybe it has, I don't know. Maybe it has yet to be. Dude, I feel like you would be good with kids. You seem to have like, yeah, I just, I mean, just by the voice and the way that you seem to carry yourself, like, I feel like children would like you. Is that a weird thing to say? No, thank you so much. It's the greatest compliment. I did work with, um, I worked in like a nursery school and, um, yeah, no, I always, I love working with kids and I love kids. And so, yeah. And are thanks. you, are you going to have any? Yes, actually, I'm pregnant now. Oh, you are. Well, then you, you yeah. definitely are. Good for you. Unless I, if hopefully things go well. How? How? Uh, may I ask how far along you are? Yeah, I'm six and a half months. Wow, boy or girl? Girl. Girl. I have a little girl. It's fun. Yeah, Evan. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, well, what, what are you gonna? Are you gonna name her Richard? What's gonna happen? <laughs> I was thinking about it. Well, my dad's name was Herbert, and I have thought about naming her Herbert, but that seemed that does seem sort of cruel. That's like maybe a middle, maybe a middle name. You know, <laughs> it'll, it'll def no. Her, her first name will definitely be an H name after him, but I haven't. H names are very difficult God. to find that are cool. You know, there's there there not a lot of cool H names. I found. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm drawing a blank. I mean, yeah, you're putting me on the spot. I'll think about it. If I come <laughs> up with any good ones, I'll let you know. But that's exciting. Okay, good. So yeah. okay, so uh, you ever con you're concerned about how having a child might affect your ability to be an artist? Really, not in terms of the creating part. Um, I think that it's just going to make things, you know, difficult. Like I, I just had a new book come out, and it, I had to cancel some readings, and um, I had to say no to, you know, a bunch of stuff, and that kind of um, made me sad. You know, like, oh no, is this bad or whatever? And um, so I just, I do foresee that, you know, in the foreseeable future, being a a definitely a rhythm where I'm not going to be able to do as many things like that. And I don't know if that really matters to the creative process, but I know that that's part of the whole thing. So, well, but it's like maybe doing reading. Cause I, I can't stand doing readings. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't like to go to them. I don't like to do them unless like it's a very good performer, but I feel like with a poet, that's usually the ones that I like because poets, uh, they usually have a more performative approach or whatever. Like, is that part of it for you? Cause I've, I, I've never seen you read, but I've heard, I've heard stories about you. Oh, thank you. I hope they're good. <laughs> um, I, I love reading. And I, I one of the great dreams is that I used to want to be an actress. So for me, reading is like not, it's not even a, you know, a real performance. You don't have to memorize anything. You can just stand up there and stuff. So, um, yeah, so I do love doing, I do get like a lot of energy from the process of it. And I, I could foresee, you know, doing all kinds of important stuff without giving readings, but just as a person, I kind of like that aspects of, of the whole thing. Yeah. I mean, there is something to be said for about like that human exchange of energy and, um, I, you know, I just feel, and I feel like poetry maybe lends itself towards being spoken better than prose. Uh, unless somebody's like a really badass reader of their own work. And, <laughs> and then I also, you know, I also have to say that it's hard for me if I don't have the text in front of me, like reading is a very quiet, private activity for me. So 
when suddenly it's being spoken at me and I'm not looking at the words or I feel it's just, I can't, I can't process it. I always get lost. Yeah. I think for, for poetry to me, it's so much a spoken art that, um, that like what's great about it is it's, for me, it's a way to edit poems because you kind of, you know, in the same way, if you're a comedian telling a joke and you have to deal with the, you know, thing, something falling flat, even if there's no reaction, even in places where poets are just kind of sitting there not saying anything, listening or whatever, you still hear if it goes flat to you in like a different way than you ever could if you were just sitting alone reading it. So I... I sort of think it's like so important to the whole thing. Yeah, I can see that. I, I, yeah, that's interesting to think of it as like a, it's almost like a workshop where you're at, you're kind of refining your 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 act. Yes, yes, I know you. I think you really are. I do, and especially yeah, just the sounds of all the words together um, is really important just to hear it in a space. So okay, and so how did you get into poetry? If you started off like. Uh, what was it? Classics and and psychology, and you wanted to be a child psychologist, and you also wanted to be an actress. Like, is that something, <laughs> is that something you ever uh, pursued in a serious way, or was it just kind of like a, a pipe dream? It was definitely a pipe dream. I mean, I tried to pursue it in high school, and I had a really shitty um, theater teacher, and so it just kind of fizzled out. And of course, I was nerdy, so that didn't exactly fit into. You know, they're acting nerds, but they're different than the kind of nerd I was. So, um, so yeah, so it, it never totally happened, but I always still really liked that. I loved the stage and I loved people looking at me. So you like that. <laughs> you like it. You like attention. Oh, definitely. Yeah. Yes, for sure. Um, well, so, but the reason I got into poetry, I mean, I didn't really want to get into poetry. I, um, when I was little, um, just being only child, I would have to go to sleep and it would be dark and I wouldn't have anything to do. It was hard to read in the dark. And so I just started writing poems um, one day and poems were a great thing to keep me occupied because they didn't have to be a particular form and you could just write them you know, however you wanted to in the dark. You didn't have to see the paper. And I'm not sure exactly why it occurred to me that to write a poem or why they were poems. Cause I don't have any memory before I started writing them of, of somebody reading me a poem and like, this is a poem. But just when I started writing them, I knew they were poems and I sort of just knew what poems were. So I tend to, I try not to see that as a mystical situation, yeah, but I, it, I was going to ask you, I was going to ask yeah. you, do you, like, do you, is it a calling? Do you see your work as a calling like the, like the, <laughs> like the priesthood or something? <laughs> well, it's hard not to, because it, it's hard to have any rational memory of, of, um, you know, it not being a calling. It definitely felt like a calling. Even when I was little, it felt like I kind of didn't have a lot of control, but since then I've tried to make sense of it and just see the ways that, you know, we grow up and households and cultures or whatever that if they value language, it makes sense, blah, blah. But I didn't, you know, I didn't have parents who were poets. So I'm not sure why it occurred to me that it was that they were, you know, that I was just going to start writing poems. Did your parent, did your parents read to you? They read to me, but not poems. If or if they did read me poems, I don't remember them, and I really don't think that they did because they didn't really know a lot about poetry. So you're doing, but so you're doing this from a young age, like like single digit age. You're starting to write poetry. Yeah, like seven years old is when I first remembered writing poems. I I may have written them before, but I I remember that as a turning point where I was just like, oh, I'm writing poems now, and I kind of always, you know, I always wrote them, and I always thought of. Uh, thought of it as sort of this side thing and not like a big deal but yet it was something that 
always was part of my life. And it just took a long time to reconcile that and figure out that, you know, it was actually probably a big part of my life. That So bad, that, like bad teenage poems about boys and stuff like that? Oh, definitely. Not even, te- you know, bad fifth grade poems about boys. I'm yeah. still writing those. <laughs> I, still, I, still believe, I still believe in those poems. <laughs> it's a genre. I do. I definitely do. Do you, do you have them? Do you, do you keep all your, do you have like records and like you say you're kind of a hoarder. Do you have all your old like fifth grade boy poems? Well, that's a sad thing. I don't really have them. There's some place in my mom's house. I have some old notebooks. Like I have one old diary, but I don't have, I remember this like weird notebook I wrote in and I really don't know where it is. So it, it's probably in my mom's house, but I'm not totally sure. I do remember some of the poems and stuff, but um, yeah, so that's, you know, that's when, maybe that's when I learned to become a hoarder. <laughs> That was, that, was, that was the pivotal moment. <laughs> yeah, this cannot be. <laughs> but I am more of a hoarder. I'm often not a hoarder about things like that that probably would be important to hoard about. I'm just more of a hoarder of like just random stuff that I'm like, this is, you know, and clothes and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean, it's like for all my minimalism, like, uh, you know, I, I do, I've, I've been in homes before where there is like really careful attention paid to stuff and it feels like it's curated. Like, mm-hmm. like, you know that the art on the walls has meaning, whereas like the art on the walls in my office is just like whatever my wife gave me. You know? <laughs> like, but you know, like, they're like, that. we traveled to Morocco and bought this rug and you're like, oh my God, like that, there's just a lot of careful thought put into it. And I like that. I do find myself kind of envious, like, oh shit, like I live in a soulless uh, box, you know, with no, no attention paid whatsoever, but that's a lot of work. You got to have. You know, it's sort of, I sort of feel the same way about people who have a really good style and put all this thought and energy into fashion. It's like, where are you finding the time to do this? But I guess <laughs> maybe they're just, you know, maybe they're, maybe they're better at managing their time than I am. <laughs> yeah, no, well, I mean, I think it's just, um, I guess that's, it's a calling too. It's like when the objects call to you and you can't stop thinking about them and that just, it's just part of it. I think, are you, you know, are you a mystical person? Are you spiritual? definitely mystical i definitely don't um kind of have i I have a sort of uh rebellious side towards organized religion i mean not that i'm against it but i hate having to do something mystical but i definitely have a lot of mysticism and definitely believe in it and believe were you were you raised conservative and christian or something like that in st louis no i was raised very very light, light, light reform Judaism, where it was basically not, it was basically just kind of an intellectual exercise. It wasn't, you know, whatever. I did have a bat mitzvah and stuff, but it wasn't, um, yeah, it it was very kind of abstracted and it was like, God could be anything. (laughs) Yeah. Well, that's good. I think, but you know, like, let's have a little humility. Like let's not not act like we know what's going on because there's a little bit of, uh, there's a little bit of arrogance in that, but um, so, uh, culturally, do you feel Jewish? Like when you were growing up in the Midwest, uh, which isn't necessarily, I mean, I, like there are some <laughs> Jewish kids in my, I grew up in Indiana, so not too far. Um, Where in Indiana? Right in Indianapolis, like in the suburbs. Oh, so my, my best friend, Eric is from Fort Wayne. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, but I think it's a similar, uh, milieu and like, uh, cultural yeah. situation. So I think. Uh, we probably had similar upbringings in some respects, but um, culturally, did you feel Jewish? Was it weird to be Jewish in St. Louis at the time you grew up? Oh, totally. Um, 
uh, there was a strong feeling of anti-Semitism, even though um, the high school I went to had, you know, a lot of Jewish students. So I didn't necessarily feel that coming from them. But I definitely there was a lot of Jewish shame. And it wasn't, um, I, I, you know, it wasn't until I moved to the East Coast, where I felt kind of more accepted. And I, um, it wasn't actually because I lived in Western Mass in Boston, but it wasn't until I moved to Philadelphia for a couple of years till I really felt like, oh, okay, I I feel accepted, sort of in this weird way. And then you get um, to then you get to Brooklyn, and it's like you own the <laughs> joint. That's it. Yeah, but then I got to New York, and I was like, this. Yeah, it did. It did kind of enliven very very long dormant um, cultural feelings that. I just had submerged and submerged and submerged. But, um, yeah, and I definitely feel those threads. And, of course, you know, I feel tied to ancestors who were Jewish, and, and that gives me a lot of, you know, connection to that part of the religion. But I'm definitely not an expert in it or, you know, right. as many people are. <laughs> you know, it's so funny. Like, I, I grew up Catholic, and uh, my one of my best friends growing up was uh, – or is Jewish, uh, but kind of Jewish in the same way that you are. Like, culturally Jewish, but like his – you know, I don't even think he had a bar mitzvah. Um, but you know, just like uh, he was Jewish, but like it was from him that I learned all this stuff about like, he's like, you know, he's like, you realize you guys think we killed Jesus. And I'm like, what? Like (laughs) I've never been able to engage. Like, I can't believe anybody would take that seriously. Like what? (laughs) Like we're, we're seriously like still kind of, uh, uh, trying to, you know, uh, battle, you know, conduct a battle about something that happened thousands of years ago. Like that has always seemed ridiculous to me. Yeah, but we are still. <laughs> I don't. We yeah, don't, yeah, We right. are still doing that. I'm yeah. not. I'm not doing it. I'm no, just, I know. Yeah. I'm no, you and I, yeah. I'm sitting we're, here, sitting here, stupefied. Well, yeah, we're we're yeah we're stupefied, but we're blissfully stupefied. <laughs> For our privilege has given us stupefaction. I guess so. I mean, is it privilege or is it just like some common sense? Like, <laughs> like what the fuck is going on? Everyone's all uptight about this. Like, let's just uh, take yeah. a breath. Well, yeah, I've I've never. Um, I've always thought it was very sad, um, but in lots of ways, you know, these issues that we divide each other are very sad because they just seem really stupid, really ridiculous. But that doesn't take away from the fact they become really guiding forces to to continue the division, you know. Right. So. Gives justification to, like, really bad behavior. You think, I don't know, it's just a mess, but... Yeah. Um, so, okay. So let's, I want you, you mentioned Western Mass in Boston and Philly, which like there's a gap in your bio. Like how did that all happen? <laughs> you know, how, like, how did, what did you do on your way from St. Louis to New York that took you to those places? Um, well, I went to, um, I went to UMass Amherst for my MFA. Um, and so, uh, so I moved straight there after college and then I moved to Boston after I finished, um, and like lived there for a couple of years. And then I, um, and then I went to Philly and it all kind of was driven by different school programs. It's not why I moved to Boston, you know, to begin with, but then I went to school there and, and then I went to school in Philly and, um, wait, and you, then, wait, wait, you went to school in Boston. I went to school in Boston. I went to school in Philly but, and, you but went I, to, and you went to Amherst to get your MFA. Yeah, but I didn't, it, it didn't drop out of the, they were just different graduate programs. It wasn't so like I was how many degrees, I'm going to try, how many degrees, I'm going to try this out. How, how, <laughs> many, how many degrees do you have? I have, well, it depends. On, well, I mean, I have three graduate degrees and an undergraduate degree. Dear God. Dear and I would get more if I could, if it wasn't student, if I didn't have a student loan situation, well, that's what I, I was going to say. How, how much student forever. loan are you, are you carrying in? Say, you don't want to know. Yeah. 
it was it's definitely not like um sadly people now going to school it's definitely not but but it is not a situation that is i could go to more school which is sad so you have three master's degrees or do you have your phd what's the deal yeah i have a doctorate in um in creativity and education from upenn and then i have a master's in arts education from harvard and then i have an mfa so you're a well-educated woman (laughs) if it it depends if you think that those i'm glad that i know we do think those degrees are worthwhile but you know to an astrophysicist i probably am not very educated (laughs) well you know but but i want to i want to see that dude read some poetry let's let's see it (laughs) <laughs> that's true. Um, well, that's cool. So you love school. You're clearly like you, you're a person who loves school. If you've been to that much school, I love school. I love the culture of school. I love everything about school. And I, I really do. Um, I like being a teacher a lot because then you kind of set the rules, but I really love being a student because there's really not a lot of pressure. You know, you can just be a total idiot and it's awesome and you can learn new stuff and did you get? You must have gotten great grades if you're going to Ivy League schools and teaching at an Ivy League school. Like, you, uh, you're a straight A kid. Not at all. Not at all. Sorry. I mean, I didn't get awful grades, but I, they weren't straight A's in, in any way. Um, and I was, you know, all, it was often all over the place, and I got bad grades in different, you know, stages. Or so, whatever. how did you get into Harvard? Well, I don't because oh, that's a long, <laughs> that's a long story. I mean, they weren't bad grades. I'm not saying, you know, it wasn't awful, but I didn't get straight A's. All right. Well, you've got good grades. You're trying to talk to – you're trying to be modest. You're trying to be modest. You're, 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 a, you're a genius. You, you have experienced a calling. I mean, I, you know, I can fuck up certain things, but um, but not always. And, you know, it was, it was good enough, I guess. Yeah. Okay. I did good enough in all these things. But. Did you, when you, were you doing all this schooling? Were you thinking like, did you have an idea of where you were going to land? You're like, I'm going to teach poetry at Columbia one day. Or is this, is this something that sort of emerged from the process somewhat to your surprise? It emerged from the process, but I definitely, once I started pursuing degrees in education, my dream was to work for the government and to work for the Department of Education. And that has been something that I've always wanted to do, you know, for, for a while, for like at least 10 years. I mean, I didn't always want to do that my entire life, but that was something I would have definitely really loved to do. And I did try to do that, but it never really worked out. If anyone from the government is listening, uh, <laughs> Dorothea would like to work. Please, yeah. I, w- I would love to. Give her a call. Just, yeah, definitely give me a call. I would love to just, yeah, even if it's ancillary at this point, whatever they'd like me to do, be on a board, I would I would love that because I think, I do think it comes from my dad. Like I just, I love the idea of governmental work and affecting change and that just really excites me. Well, you know what? That's nice to hear because I feel like there's so much cynicism uh, surrounding um you know the government and any kind of yes. uh, any kind of work in that realm people tend to look down their nose at these days and not without reason but i think there's a real danger in that level of cynicism because if good people decide that they want to turn their back on it as i have <laughs> and of course that assumes i'm a good person but like I've, I've gotten frustrated to the point where i didn't even vote in this last election which i feel sort of ashamed of now at least, at least some part of me does um, but it's like, you know, I, I gotta like rethink that maybe because when people start to do that and all that's left are, um, you know, whoever the, the, uh, Fox news crowd or just people who are completely off the reservation in terms of their thinking, it can become, uh, you know, even worse. Yes, I know. I, I totally agree. It's, you know, like, 
it it's important for us to still feel some hope. I mean, maybe it's because I grew up around like Bill Clinton style. I still believe in a thing called hope. In a thing called hope. He cracks me up, Bill Clinton. <laughs> but I mean, you know, that there's some darkness there, though. See, the, I'm not a I'm an independent. Like the the Clintons, like there's something dark about the Clintons in my view. But um, again, I'm cynical. I always I'm always thinking. And I, I remember reading a bio of him by David Marinus years ago called First in His Class. And I remember like putting it down and like wanting to take a chemical shower. It was just like, <laughs> like there's a lot of darkness. Well, I don't think you survive in politics by being, you know, a, a nun. Yeah. No. <laughs> you, know, you, you can't survive by being pure. But to me, that is, that is part of it. If you, and I'm, you know, not exalting everything they've done, but I think if you, if you want to do anything, you you can't be purely good. It's true. And you have to be, you have to be an actor and you have to, you know, behave in ways that are not always good all the time. But if you can do something good, which arguably who knows who has in the last whatever hundred years, but if you can do it, then to me, it's worth those small evils or even large evils. If you can make something change, it's a, you know, it's a really difficult job. It's a really difficult job, uh, because you do have to make deals with the devil. Like you have to do things that like, like it, it can be really easy for somebody who's idealistic to look at a, a, a politician, and I might be talking about myself here. I'm not sure, <laughs> <laughs> but like I'm not. Yeah, there's a strong strain of idealism in me, which I'm not, which I kind of like, you know. But I think that it has its weaknesses too. But it's easy to get disappointed if you have that idealism, um, yeah. Because just the reality of the job is that you have to go in and, uh, like you say, you have to be willing to uh, do some evil things or do some not so nice things in order to advance maybe the nicer things. Yes, I know. I do. I do believe that like, you don't, you know, life is about you. You want to be able to do something good every single second, but you can't like, you can't always pick up the napkin you drop because you're trying to save someone from getting hit by a car, you know, and you have, you have to make that choice. And, um, it's, some things are more important. And even if you're littering, you did just do something more important. I want to see you as the official inaugural poet. <laughs> At, Me uh, too. At the swearing in of Hillary Clinton. Do you think that would yes. be? Is that what you oh, like? I, I would love that. I voted for her before and I, I would be so happy. You're, I would love you, you like her? I mean, like, like I think women uh, in particular get very excited about her, the prospect of her candidacy. Like, do you think that would be, um, I guess that would be exciting. I mean, just. I know I know that they've done bad stuff, but I do. Um, I'll always have a soft spot for the Clintons, and that would be so exciting if she won. I really does, hope it, she won. does it just go back to your childhood and when they were first coming onto the national scene, or did you ever like work for their campaign or something? Or what's the soft spot rooted in? Yeah, no, um, not not. I never worked for their campaign, so some of it is maybe just having a naive sense of politics, you know, as to growing up or whatever. But. Um, I just, there was just, I was always drawn to, drawn to them. And it probably is kind of some sentimentality, but I think also when they, you know, when Bill Clinton left office and then Gore didn't go into office, I, you know, had just finished college and I was studying classics. And to me, it was like, oh shit, this is just like Rome. Things are going to get messed up. You know, this is like Augustus, you know, and all this stuff. And this is the end. And I've always still kind of carried that as stupid as that seems now <laughs> to think that. And so I, I, would don't, I, don't, I don't necessarily think like making ro Roman parallel, like Roman <laughs> comparisons is, is, I think that's kind of apt. I mean, <laughs> yeah. there's, there's a lot of similarities. 
Yeah, definitely. And I, so to me, it's like to get, you know, that possibility back where um, it seemed like things were, even if they weren't perfect, they seem better than, than what they are now and what they were, you know, right after Clinton ended, then that to me would be really exciting. And I do really like Hillary. I would be really excited if she, if she won. Yeah. Well, I, you know, it's going to be, that's going to be their point of sale. I think it's like, <laughs> let's redo the nineties. Let's the nineties weren't so bad. <laughs> and they weren't, I mean, I, they went to, really I, went, I went to, I mean, hindsight's 2020, but I mean, I went to college in the nineties and that was an easy decade, man. That was, uh, everybody, everybody got out of college. Like a lot of my friends got out of college and like we suddenly were working in tech and they were like millionaires. And I, we just thought that was how it was. You know? <laughs> like, yeah. Yeah, no, it it seemed better, you know, and of course, it, yeah, it is totally skewed, but, um, but yeah, I I think the '90s were probably were really awesome. I'd love to relive them. All right, so uh, you, you know, now you're you're teaching at Columbia, you're doing your poetry, um, you're getting ready to have a baby. Yeah. Uh, everything seems to be lining up for you. Is there anything like you you aside from working for the Department of Education or reading at Hillary's inaugural? Like, <laughs> is there anything else on your? Is there it any, still happen. We've decided, right? Oh yeah. No, I, I, just, yeah. I, just the fact that I mean, my these are disappointments. These my, are just wishes. There's, there's clear. There's surely somebody in her office listening to this podcast. <laughs> my reach is my reach is enormous in the halls of power. <laughs> so but you know do you have anything on your list are you somebody who's goal oriented like are you like uh, I want to do this and I haven't done it yet well I would you know I got these degrees in education and my dream would be to write more on education I'm not sure exactly what that would look like I haven't you know um, put a lot of work in trying to publishing my dissertation I don't know if that would be even something that could be could happen at this point but I would love to take some of that work and try to do more research studies or talk or do you know symposiums or just be more involved and that that's something that would make me really happy if I could reconnect to to those conversations and I think also like I um I did this like lecture book lecture series or whatever and I had never really written what might be considered sort of nonfiction, even though it, it kind of probably really wasn't. And that kind of excited me that maybe I would start to, you know, I'd like to start writing nonfiction in some way, which I think could relate to education stuff, obviously. So, um, so that feels like something that might be an exciting direction. Like, um, like a book, like not like a memoir, but like more like a book that's like a cultural study or like a book like yeah. like, like nickel and dimed, but it's about education or something like yeah, something that can influence like the public conversation. Yeah, yeah. And it could be about education, maybe other things, maybe like just I'd like to be more involved in cultural criticism in some way. And um, I don't really know how that'll take shape. And, and then the other thing is that. I've always wanted to write children's books and I, I wrote a children's book, but I'm not sure how happy I feel about it. That's like going to come out with like um, a little press and I'd love to do that more. That's kind of like a long-term dream. Well, so I hope, I hope you, that once you uh, have this kid, once you have this kid, like you'll start to, you'll be steeped in it and then it'll start yeah. to, I think that'll help. Cause I feel like yeah. there's no genre I know more intimately right now than the kid's book genre. Uh, I can, <laughs> can like recite them verbatim but um you know the other thing i think about when i'm reading these things is that if you write a classic children's book you've got to make a shit ton of money because those things just sell in perpetuity and, yeah uh, there's like a generational attachment like talk about hoarding and sentimentality <laughs> but like there's definitely a part of me that wants my daughter to read all the books i loved as a kid and this is like you know we're talking uh multiple decades of uh, time yeah. between them so like these things have a, a longer shelf life maybe 
than uh, other books might. If you can get yes. if you can get into that, you know, that echelon, which I suppose is the the hard part. <laughs> it does seem a little difficult, but I would I I will try because yeah. I would love to. Yeah. So um, yeah. So I just that would be an exciting thing to do. So hopefully that'll be a next step. Like like it could be like uh, Dorothea and the herd of nerds. There's your book. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, I'd love to write books. I think it'd be so important to write books about nerds so that people can accept you know nerd culture and stuff like that in a in a way, and that might help with bullying. I mean, there's all yeah, like stuff like that would be important. Yeah, there's a really good bu- a bullying kids book called uh, what is it called One. And it's oh. about the different colors and how like red is really mean to the other colors. And then the number one comes along and uh, <laughs> it's, it's clever, you know, like you start to, you start to appreciate children's books in terms of how they're delivered. And, um, it's just very clever. So you have to check that one out. Oh, I want to. Okay. I'm going to check it out because I love colors and numbers. Yeah. And then, so in terms of like your nerd love, I mean, poets, I think would fall under the nerd umbrella or at least most poets. Um, you know, <laughs> do, yeah right are you uh are you like is there a particular tribe like are you are you uh, like giving a full embrace to nerds of all kinds or are there particular kinds like are you really into the comic book thing uh, <laughs> obviously poetry is your thing like what are your specific nerd preferences <laughs> <laughs> well I, <laughs> I i like them all <laughs> i just love when people are really into something i love when somebody's like i'm gonna do this thing and like I, um, I'm like gonna commit to it. Um, like I went to the museum with a friend this past weekend, and he um, started writing down like the material. It was like a shoe exhibit, and he started writing down the materials in one, um, like one shoe, and then like the next shoe. Like this is made out of wood, and I realized he was gonna do it for like every single shoe in the exhibit. And that to me was like that's like the perfect nerdy, wonderful, intrinsic motivation, whatever you know, sort of. Uh, moment and that's like I love that quality in people and so whatever way it's manifest really excites me and I I, because I think that it's possible for everyone to be you know to have that moment about something there everyone can get really excited about something it's just finding what that is yeah that's true like that's kind of a nice quality when somebody has something that they're interested in and they just sort of love it unabashedly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and they commit to it and be, it's not really committing to it. Like they just, it's, they're compelled. It's not compulsion, but they're compelled to do it. Like it, it is a calling, you know, that's like, I'm going to, you know, eat every raspberry colored food um, that I can <laughs> because <Right. laughs> that's like really important to me. And that once you find that, then I think that is a reason for all the, you know, bad parts of living that, that that's the one thing that, you know, you can count on to make you happy. And for you, that's poetry. Um, sometimes <laughs> just poetry and hoarding. Those are your two Ho- things. Hoarding. Poetry, poetry and objects. Those two things together. Definitely. Yeah. What I kind think. of what kind of objects are we talking? You collect art. You collect uh, what little elephants? What do you do? Well, I do have some miniatures, but I love um, jewelry, and I have a lot of plastic jewelry, and um, so I love that. I love to collect collect that. I mean, it, it always sounds stupid when I talk about it, but I really think there's like a kind of resin renaissance that's going on where people are creating really, really beautiful resin jewelry, and so that just really excites me, and I just always feel energized wearing it and looking at it and stuff wow. and then your baby's due in just a few months yeah so i can't wait to get her some yeah 
little, little, little Herbert. She'll be one of those. She'll have her ears pierced multiple times by the time she's four. I know. I've thought about that actually. What is that? Is that okay? Is that abuse? I don't know. But yeah, no. I you know I don't know. I think like with an infant, I I I, I feel like it would hurt them to pierce their little ears, and uh, that would be sort of hard to watch. But then again. I'm pro circumcision, so I'm a penis mutilator. I don't have a son, but you know, like I think I'm, I think I would go that way. I don't know. The foreskin bothers me, so who knows? The good thing about um, about bracelets is that you know you don't have to hurt anyone. So I think bangles will be a, you know, that can be something I can introduce very early. Yeah, yeah. Some pla- some plastic bangles from, uh, you know, some toxic plastic bangles from a Chinese factory. Put those in the crib. <laughs> no, I'm talking about artisanal. Uh, yeah, f- from Bed-Stuy, from Brooklyn. <laughs> yeah, beautiful, beautiful bracelets. Everybody can appreciate. Wow. Well, that's cool. I'm glad to hear um, that you have these passions. And it's been so fun talking with you. And I congratulate you on all of your success. Wish you more success in the future with your writing and with, uh, you know, your Hillary Clinton uh, you know, <laughs> Department of Education position, which is certainly forthcoming after you read her inaugural. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and especially with the uh, with the birth of your daughter, that's that's just great news, and I wish you well. Thank you so much, and it's been great talking to you. And thanks for having me on your show. Okay, guys, there you have it, Dorothy Alasky. What a delightful human being! Go get her latest collection. It's called Rome. It is available now from Live Right, and you can find her online at dorothyalasky.com. She's on the Twitter too. And uh, her handle over there is at Dorothy Alasky. Thanks to Kill Rockstars, as usual, for all the great music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget to go get that app, the free official Other People app. Sign up for premium. Stream the full archives. Support the show. Or, uh, and or, and slash or, go to thenervousbreakdown.com and sign up for that book club. Give it away as a gift. What a great gift. Give away both as a gift. Oh, man. That's an awesome idea. If you would like to email me, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. Send word. And, uh, you know, if you're traveling, if you're in transit right now, Thanksgiving holiday, wishing you a happy Thanksgiving. Even if you're not traveling. If you're completely inert, I'm wishing you a happy Thanksgiving. A day of uh, gluttony and lethargy before uh, Christmas really kicks in. Before the mall gets you in its tractor beam and sucks you in. Please remember that Stephen Crane died of tuberculosis and that John Sibelius did not write a single note of music in the last 30 years of his life. That is all for now. Thanks to Dorothy Alasky for uh, being such a great guest. Go get her book. And uh, thanks to you guys, as always, for listening. I really am grateful. I think I say this every year on the uh, Thanksgiving episode. But I am grateful. I think I say it a lot. I tell you how grateful I am for you all the time. That's how good of a guy I am. Let's, let's, uh, let's pat me on the back right now. Let's all take a moment to uh, honor and lionize me. <laughs> but uh, no, I'm just saying thank you. I appreciate it. And uh, I will be back very soon. I will be talking to another author as we round uh, the bend and prepare to exit the year 2014. What's going to happen in 2015? Are things going to get better? 
Is that even a question to ask? Do things improve? Do they degenerate? Or is it just some big cycle playing itself out over and over again? Are we just going in circles? Is it more about circles and less about like linear time and straight lines and trajectories? I don't know. I sort of feel like I'm right now, this moment, I sort of feel like the, the circle thing, the, the cyclical history being cyclical thing is, is sort of persuasive to me right now. Then again, basic sanitation seems like progress. I would not have wanted to be alive in a like pre-toilet, the pre-toilet era. Though if uh, reincarnation is a thing, then I guess I was alive. I mean, there's no such thing as death, right? Birth and death are illusions. I've always been here. I've been here pre-outhouse. You know? <laughs> <laughs>